This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. In a moment, you'll hear my conversation with the eponymous discount brokerage firm Trailblazer, Charles Schwab, a genuine pioneer. But first, as I look at the week ahead, here's what to expect. There'll be the usual figures coming out. There'll be sales for retail and food services coming out on October 16th, that's Wednesday. On Thursday, we'll get a report on housing starts, weekly insurance unemployment claims, industrial capacity numbers, all those kind of things, but the headlines we know will be dominated by. October 15th, Tuesday, Democrats are having a debate, so no mystery as to what the debate's gonna cover. Impeachment, Ukraine, and it'll be interesting. What kind of questions will Joe Biden get? Elizabeth Warren is now considered the front runner Will she be attacked by her opponents? Will the questioners go after her now that she is on top of the stack? We'll wait and see. We'll get it soon enough. Then there'll be more on Turkey and its attack on the Kurds, our one-time allies who helped us defeat ISIS. The president has abandoned them, which reminds one of a quotation from Henry Kissinger, former Secretary of State. He once said, to be an enemy of America can be dangerous but to be a friend is fatal. And plenty of times in the past, allies have found out we have not been a reliable partner. Really a travesty. Of course, the Chinese controversy will continue. Will we get a trade deal? We may get one momentarily, but maybe not. And Hong Kong and the NBA, plenty of grist for the mill there. But it all underscores why people like to come to America. It's still the land of the free for all of our flaws and faults. Well, we have as our special guest today, Charles Schwab, founder, the creator, the Charles Schwab Corporation. He's got a new book out called Invested, Changing Forever, The Way Americans Invest. That subtitle is an understatement, which is unusual for a book. This man profoundly changed the way we invest. So, uh, Chuck, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you very much, Steve. It's a real pleasure to be here this morning. And uh, you're one of the great entrepreneurs, and anyone who reads that book will realize the life of an entrepreneur is not an easy one. Oh, boy. Let me tell you, lots of ups and downs. Uh, That's another understatement. But one of the points you make in the book, and we'll hit this theme again and again, uh, one If you're an optimist, you can be a successful investor. You have to be an optimist. And the American economy, the American equity markets always come back, and people always succumb to panic and miss the ride upward. As you point out in the book, if you had invested in Schwab when you did your IPO, reinvested the dividends, you are for what, a mere 21,000% or something? Something like that. It's (laughs) almost beyond my calculator's uh, capability. So... Let's start with your childhood. So you're born in California. You describe your father as generous, but a strict disciplinarian. Oh, my goodness. He was a very Germanic gentleman and uh, a lawyer. So he had all the legal background and so forth. So he was a small town lawyer and uh, taught me a lot of wonderful things, mostly around discipline. So your mother, uh, by contrast, uh, was more fun-loving, but uh, both had been through the Depression 
Yeah. And you say in the book, my own attitudes about financial security and personal independence went against that depression mentality. Describe that mentality that you grew up with and you decided this was not going to govern your life. Well, through the 40s and uh, early 50s, everything in our family was measured around how much did it cost? Did we have enough? And so forth. We were very modest income as a family. And so as a kid, I was, I guess I was more entrepreneurial than you might have thought of at the time, but I wanted to help the family. I wanted to make money, wanted to make sure that in my life going forward that I didn't always have to worry about the budget. Now, in childhood, you have, uh, we, we call it dyslexia, but it was not well known at the time, and you paid a price for it. Dyslexia was a word that really had no science around it in the 40s and 50s when I was in and You were born school. in 1937. 37, exactly. And uh, that the science around dyslexia or learning difficulties, uh, reading in particular for my case, uh, didn't really come about for another 20 or 30 years. And so, and really, I didn't really understand what it was all about until I had my son, my youngest son, uh, diagnosed, and they come up with this wonderful word called dyslexia. So I really got into studying that, and I, it was very obvious that Michael uh, got it from me. <laughs> and uh, you said uh, growing up with dyslexia, as it became to be called, you learned to try harder and you learned to listen carefully. Well, that was my only way to survive, frankly. I spent a lot of time after school. I, first uh, six years of my childhood, I went to a, a school taught by nuns, and they were very discipline-oriented also, so they kept me a lot of times afterwards at the blackboard, was called it back then, with a the chalk and so forth. And, uh, boy, I had to work not only my multiplication tables, but all my sounds and so forth, alphabet, etc., it was a struggle, but fortunately, I, I do know the alphabet now. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of symbols as well. Yeah. So despite the dyslexia, you're an undergraduate at Stanford. Then you go to the Stanford Business School and uh, make your way through. But one course you did not do well in was human resources. Now, here you're a very friendly guy, very uh, gregarious. People like you. But in human well, relations, you, you didn't what, – what was that all about? Well, Steve, that was a combination of things. I was in business school, first year of business school, and, and I had been married very young. And so my first child was born that day. I had three midterms. One, I got an A in statistics, a, another course similar, and then HR, human relationships, uh, human resources was the class I got an F in. I think it was just because I was exhausted. But I – I really wasn't particularly good at that subject anyhow. So anyway, I found I needed to get help in that later on when I develop a business. <laughs> One of the points you make in business is that uh, learn to hire people who can do things you don't do particularly well. Well, that was, I think, one of the advantages of understanding myself, knowing that I could do some things really well and a multitude of other things I couldn't do very well. So I learned very early on how to delegate, how to really surround myself with people who are outstanding in other subject matters, others. And so developing that team was critically important to me in my early beginnings of the business. You graduate, you go to a firm called Laverne Foster. Yeah. Tell us uh, about that. This well, wasn't a typical brokerage firm. They, they did advice. They, no, they gave investment advice. And actually, I worked for them while I was going to business school at nights and on weekends. Uh, just to make a few extra bucks along the way. and uh, But what they specialize is in growth companies. And I really 
began learning about the elements behind growth companies, how they did it, what was essential, and how to analyze companies that uh, do that and do it well. And so that was a great early experience for me that Probably later, learned more there than in business school. Uh, I, yeah, actually I did, as a matter of fact. Uh, well, the combination was pretty nice, too. <laughs> and one of the things you learned about growth stocks, which you applied to your own company, was don't maximize short-term profits. Go for growth, and uh, the bottom line will eventually take care of itself. Well, you got to grow if you're going to succeed. Yeah, that was uh, early learning, to say the least, to analyze these companies, what it really took, and how it was really what we call the investment in the company, investment in the idea, investment in the product. All those things are critically important. That's why investing is such a foundational thing in our system here in America, that capital investment that you attract money and uh, from that you work hard and maybe a deficit and then move on hopefully to profitability. Now, you recognized being a born entrepreneur that you wanted to be on your own. As you say in the book, entrepreneurs, there are men and women who feel compelled to act. So you eventually left Laverne Foster. Uh, that was quite a story in and out. But uh, you started a newsletter. Started an investment newsletter called Investment Indicators, actually. And we, at our high point, we had some three or 4,000 people. And you charged. And we charged $60 a, a year for this uh, wonderful service. And we were sort of advising people on uh, 20 different stocks, some growth stocks and some larger companies, and also talked about market cycles. We did a lot of analysis about that and thought we could sort of predict some market cycles and help people when they were to buy and when they were to sell. Uh, it turned out much more difficult than we thought. How did you get 3,000 subscribers, though? Well, we advertised in Barron's that back then. Actually, you probably don't remember it, Steve, but we advertised in Forbes magazine. Too. That's where you probably got 2,800. Yeah, you 3, got 000. it. <laughs> yes. So at the, at the time, you owned 20%, another partner 20 another person outside investor 60%, and you decide you want to buy them out. You want to run the ship on your own. And you buy them out, but you find out that doesn't mean you live happily ever after. No, not at all. At, uh, we struggled further, and we had some other issues. We had a mutual fund by that time. We actually had a couple hedge funds, actually. Uh, was one, when I was 31, I was managing two hedge funds also, plus a, a mutual fund. Now, this was and, 1968, which yeah, turns uh, out to have been the high of the market oh, from high of the generation market, and to that's come. When our good friend, uh, President Nixon, uh, gave up his presidency, and uh, it was a terrible time between 68 and 71, 72. And so we eventually, sort of everything sort of collapsed on its own weight. So you have a lot of debt. We had you, a lot of debt. You had a personal and, uh, failure. Personal failure. I was... Actually, I was at the point of frustration. I thought, I don't know if this investment world is going to be my best place. So I decided to go to law school. Well, I was spent about two weeks in law school and find out that was not my career. I couldn't read that many books that fast. And so this dyslexia issue sort of came to your rescue. Head. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so I, um, fortunately, that was the night by 1973 is when I really formed Schwab as the company and had the idea about discount brokerage and such. And there was changes in the wind. The SEC, Congress, everyone was sort of moving towards 
moving from fixed commissions, which were in place for 200 years, to uh, negotiated uh, open trading in uh, free trade, so to speak, in, in uh, commission business. And you had a key insight. The whole Wall Street commission system, you concluded, worked against the investor, the individual investor. Explain that insight and how that motivated what you were going to do next. Well, there was many, as you analyze, and, and since I had never been a stockbroker, as I said, I wasn't able to sell very well anyhow, and so I was would have been an unsuccessful stockbroker had I even tried. So I was more of an analyst. So I had a lot of uh, brokers who came to us with ideas when I was at the investment advisory firm, and they were always selling stories, big stories, about how we were going to get rich by buying their story, and most of which turned out to be a lot of BS that was not correct and was never came to fruition. Family station, let's call it hype. And so <laughs> one would finally got to the point say, well, I finally figured out the higher the commission was on some of these products, the higher the uh, compensation was to the broker, and it turned out to be a terrible conflict of interest. Brokers were just fraught with conflicts of interest. So I wanted to start a firm that had elimination of that. So all our brokers at Schwab then and today are based on salary compensation. No commissions whatsoever ever paid to a, our brokers at Schwab. And so that was a, it was not easy because it was changing what the industry has always done for years and years and years. And so uh, we made that change and I think it's been, uh, well, served our clients because of that. But instead of being uh, treated with uh, rose petals and uh, hailed as a hero, you and other like firms, as you put it, were vaguely disreputable. You apply for a membership on the Pacific Stock Exchange, for crying out loud, and initially they turned you down because having a low commission on a stock, they said it was unethical. I couldn't believe that. I went to their, before their committee I said, how could you possibly come to the conclusion this is unethical? This is what everybody wants. So that question, actually, eventually they did allow us to buy a membership on the Pacific Stock Exchange. It was a little teeny regional exchange in yes, San Francisco. Who, like, who were they to turn you down? <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. But that was some one of the many, many things we had along the way that were summing blocks for us to become a successful company. And uh, it went on. I'll never forget uh, one of the stories that I talk about a little bit. We wanted to, we were growing. We'd had two or three offices. And we wanted to open an office in Seattle. And uh, the landlord who wanted to rent us the place up on the 20th floor or something like that came back to us and said, I'm sorry, Mr. Schwab, uh, the uh, broker down on the front street floor, the main office, and they have 100,000 square feet or what it was downstairs, not maybe not quite that much, but your little 2,000 square foot upstairs, they're going to move out if we let you rent that space way up on the 20th floor. And so that kind of threat was thrown at us along the way. And uh, a couple calls, the Justice Department helped me out in that respect. The Justice Department actually really called the brokerage firm back and said, look, hands off of that one. But one of the things you did with your firm over the years was you always were on the forefront of technology. Even yeah. though they say pioneers get the arrows, you're willing to take it because you knew you had to be one step ahead in serving your customers. I think, uh, Steve, in many ways, I was very lucky about a lot of things. But I think one was I started the firm on the West Coast. We were right in the heart 
of the Silicon Valley growth. And all my friends, we were business guys also, and uh, most of them were in technology. Some were in the wine business, some were in other businesses. But I got to really be familiar with people in the uh, technology world, and they said, sort of helped and guided me along in some of the adoptions of early technology along the way. And that was my only solution, frankly, was technology. And I was, we were adopted early on and spent huge sums of our revenues uh, and expenses in terms of adopting new technologies. Now talk about marketing. One of the things you did in your first ad, the moniker, No Salesman Will Call. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, that was all a part of the thinking that I thought people who were very self-directed investors who are looking for an opportunity to buy and sell things that they had researched, whether they used ValueLine or Forbes or whatever it might have been at the time, that they wanted to have a place that they could buy without some conflicted stockbroker looking over their shoulder. So I wanted to make sure people knew that they were coming to Schwab with someone who was really a, a, a compensated by salary, not by commission. And I want to make it very plain and direct to people so they would understand what the deal was at the time. And it became very clear to most people this was a pretty good idea. But it was only limited, only for those people who were did their own research, were self-directed, uh, who weren't believing in big, fancy ideas that were going to go off the charts, you know, for a conflicted commission relationship. So anyway, that was uh, what I did in advertising. One of the challenges we touched on is a point out growth outpaces sources of capital. Oh, boy. Tell us about the first IPO, the failed IPO. Well, early on, we were growing like crazy. We were growing, you know, 50, 100%. And this is important for people to understand. Success does not mean you can relax. Success has its own special problems. It can also ruin you. Absolutely. You can get way ahead of your, your growth in different ways. But in our case, we needed more capital for money to train people. We needed money for an office space. We needed more office space because we had more people. Uh, we had more clients, and that required more other things too. And so we were always moving ahead of our ability to create earnings, and so that requires investment capital. So unlike a competitor like Les Quick, Quick and Riley, right. you uh, weren't so much concerned about profit margins. You wanted growth and the profits right. would follow, but you wanted to be the number one. You had to be big. I wanted to be, well, starting with five people, it wasn't hard to <laughs> have that vision, I guess. That's what we started with, see, was five people. Now we have about 20,000, but at the time, uh, we were growing so quickly, uh, I tried to go to Wall Street, and Wall Street simply did not want in any way to put money up to help. For something their, disreputable. Their, 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 well, that, but also the competitor. Yes. Uh, we well, were underpriced. Competitors are always yeah, disreputable. Yeah. And so that was, that was way back in the primitive ages of the 1980s. And so anyway, that led eventually, because our growth rate was so high, when Bank America came around with a- Well, first uh, you uh, got money from most unlikely source, National Steel. Well, National Steel, it was actually Tony Frank who ran a savings and loan company under National Steel. I don't know why they bought the uh, savings loan itself way back in the 70s. But Tony Frank was a great friend of mine through an organization called the Young Presidents Organization, YPO. 
And Tony loved our company and uh, saw it growing, saw the potential of it. So uh, when I was turned down by Wall Street, I went to Tony and said, look, I'm looking for money. I need about $3 million. And so I sold 20% of the company to him for $3 million. And uh, they've been very happy about that return ever since. And you're, even though you had this growth, you're always innovating. Uh, one of the things you uh, did was uh, do trading 24-7, allowing that. That, was, that was interesting. You love this. When Ronald Reagan was running for office in 1980, 81, I guess it was, uh, November of 81, and I said, this thing is going to be a landslide. I want to be open 24-7 at that, uh, actually 24 hours. That was obviously on Tuesday. Uh, election day, and I want to be open all Monday night and Tuesday. And we took a record number of orders as the landslide became more obvious for Reagan and the turnaround and the confidence investment was really going to be picking up. Uh, we all anticipated, and of course it did. Uh, orders came in, and so that was the beginning of us moving to a 24-hour overnight basis. Now, Bank of America, you... Uh eventually strike a deal. You're going to sell out to Bank of America. Uh, this was going to be your ticket, uh, seat on the board, respectable poobahs on the board, capital to grow. And before we get to that, you got some very unusual concessions from them that turned out to be a lifesaver. I didn't realize it, frankly, at the time. It was the, it was the protection of my name and likeness, uh, which was... Uh, preserved by myself, but at any rate, it was part of the, in 1980, we were growing so fast, and they, I, I was brought up as a kid, as I said, with no money, and so they sort of dangled a, a nice number out there at the time, it was, uh, 52, it was million. $52 million for the company itself, and I owned at the time, I think, about 25, 30% of it, and so that was a lot of money to me, I thought, oh my, that's more money I ever could have ever dreamt about. So we made the deal with B of A. We became a subsidiary of B of A. I continued on growing and, and uh, the company. But they allowed you to keep your own auditor, keep your own team. Yeah, right. Extraordinary autonomy. Yeah. You and my own lawyers. And uh, then I also became a member of the board of Bank of America, the parent company. And uh, that was... And at the time, you were expanding IRAs, yeah. mutual funds yeah, you yeah. saw, online trading. But B of A went from being a savior and everything else to an albatross. Well, in the 80s, they had big problems. They had lent money to the wrong places. There was the international uh, trading America, uh, bank, well, shipping. South America, <laughs> shipping, all of that stuff, and they lost a lot of money. And the regulators were really unhappy with them, and so that gave me the opportunity, the but time. But you were one of, about the only board member who was examining what was going on. I was the saying, only board member, 27 members of the board. Who said, I, something is wrong here and we better do something yeah, about right, it. You'd I, seen too many crises yeah, to say, no, oh, this this will take care of itself. No, no, I, I, I presented to the whole board. In fact, I talk about that one uh, very important board meeting and uh, here I was this lone voice. I had it all put together. You brought in uh, outside order. I mean, you've yeah, really done your homework. I Deloitte and Touche confirmed all the things I was going through. All their loan loss ratios were all, they were sort of manipulating their earnings at the time. In some sense, in my view, they were. And they never conceded that, but uh, they were. And uh, so that was, 
an issue, and the regulators finally, the bank regulators finally came and uh, had them uh, cease and desist on this thing, and they had to comply with the regulatory things. Your, your your presentation itself, as you put it in the book, uh, went over like a lead balloon. Oh man, I was. They, want, I they was, wanted to shoot the messenger. I was persona non grata. I mean, I walked out of there. My head was low. I tell you, and I thought this this place is not for me. And it was actually shortly thereafter. Uh, that I decided to uh, resign from the board and sort of go about a process. How could I buy the company back? So afterwards, you do a successful IPO and talk about timing. The IPO was completed in September oh, 1987. 87. And for those of you who don't know your history, what happened in October 19th, 1987? Oh, boy. We, we had an enormous drop in the, the 23% markets. 23% in one day. One, one single day, uh, the market had dropped. And so we were right in the middle of our IPO. And uh, it was a chaotic time, to say the least, for our firm and me in particular. Uh, we had... Uh, we had an issue with one of our clients in Hong Kong. Who, Tell us about uh, uh, Teddy Wang. Teddy, Teddy Wang, uh, who had a very sophisticated way of making money. He had a large portfolio, one of the very wealthiest guys in Hong Kong, but most of which was in real estate. He had other liquid investment. Anyway, he had lost a lot of money in uh, by uh, selling puts. And when puts, if you're naked puts and the market uh, drops, the puts go up in value, went just the opposite of the marketplace. And uh, so he uh, had a large and growing debit balance as such. And, not uh, just with you. Not with us. He had many other firms in Wall Street had were suffering the same issue uh, with Teddy. So anyway, we finally resolved things with him, but we lost a whole bunch of money because of that time period. And I couldn't defend what was going on in the option world that was the markets in the American Stock Exchange at the time had got to a point at the severe moments that were locked and closed, and uh, the markets were just uh, were, were not functioning. And so I couldn't defend that, so we finally resolved our thing with Teddy Wang. So, well, yeah, But uh, also it underscored again, we'll see it again. Uh, as you put it, we're wired for fight or flight, and people always panic, even oh, though if they stick with it, they're going to do just it, fine. Steve, it's a terrible emotional thing that happens to people when are, there are markets that decline, and TV guys are full of negative news, and everyone's feeling terrible about things. So right at the worst possible moment, people get the urge to sell, to run to cash. It's just the opposite of what should happen. This should be the time that they should fill their basket up with stocks and do the opposite. But you look back over time, it, sure enough, it always happens the same way. Most people sort of get depressed. They sell the market. They, they lose all the opportunity of the upside. Somebody said stocks are the only thing you want more of when the price is going higher and you want to dump when you're getting bargains. <laughs> exactly. It's crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. One of the things uh, entrepreneurs are good at is uh, seeing opportunity in the most unusual ways. Tell us how you realized there was a huge market out there and the growth of financial advisors. Well, I sort of couldn't believe it. that we, we noticed this in the mid-'80s that many uh, independent small investment advisory firms began using Schwab as a custodian. And uh, so we noticed these statements and so forth going to the same outfit, the copies of it, one to the customer and one to the advisor. And I thought this is not possible because I thought all investment advisors were sort of endeared to 
traditional brokers. A broker would bring the account into you, and you'd pay all the commissions, everything else, to the the broker introducing the business. Well, I was wrong about that. These independent advisors really wanted to have low cost for their customers. They wanted to have great service, custodial service. They didn't want to have the interference of a stockbroker involved or being obligated to a traditional stockbroker. So we introduced the Schwab Investment Advisory Services. So we now have five or 8,000 advisors throughout the country use us as a custodian. And they do their business through us, obviously pay us four ninety five on a transaction. It's great for their clients, great for us. And so it developed into a multi-billion dollar business. Actually, we have probably a trillion, trillion no, no, and a half. No, another example of a service uh, that was, uh, like with mutual funds, with your marketplace, you as the individual didn't have to go to 10 or 20 different uh, firms to uh, do trading in No, uh, it was all funds. simplified. So one, one account, stop. One account, <laughs> one stop, uh, one phone call. And now it doesn't require a phone call. Just get on your computer and put an order in for whatever fund you want or sell. None of the paperwork, none of the signing, none of all the, the terrible paperwork things that happened you know, years ago. And uh, when you went to the internet or these other technological changes, there are problems, but you make the point you can't wait around for perfection. You just have to go ahead. You've got you to gotta bite the bullet. And if you're 95% there or 90% there, I usually say 80%, uh, you have to put up with a little bit of aggravation, and as you, but the concept, if you get the concept right and you prove the marketplace, enough people come in, you can get the other little details, I think, solved if you work hard at it. Now, in 1998, December of 1998, the value of your company exceeds Merrill Lynch. <laughs> that, was, that was quite a Christmas. Uh, it didn't last for very long, let me tell you, but there was a moment in time on Wall Street we were valued. Our market cap was higher than Merrill Lynch, and that was somewhat embarrassing, but our multiple went crazy. It was sort of like an internet bubble thing, and that clearly was an internet bubble moment. And so multiples of companies got to crazy levels, and of course that's exactly what happened in, 2000, in 1999. Following in 2000 and 2001, market collapses, all the technology stocks at the time go down by 50, 60, 70%, and we we did too. <laughs> and uh, again, another traumatic experience. You point out you had a 70% drop in volume. Yeah, it was unbelievable. And, and uh, eventually having to do painful layoffs, head count down by 50% yeah, before the no. crisis was over. And then you said you did something you regret about the 401k. Well, we were trying to cut back expenses in every possible way, and, and one of my personal bad decisions at the time, and I thought it would only be temporary, but it wasn't still, a, we eliminated the payment of the 401k to our contribution to the clients. So it was we're saving about $50 million in that year by virtue of that, but it was the backlash from employees, although I knew it was going to be temporary, um, I couldn't explain that too well. So that was a bad HR decision on my part, <laughs> and I regret it to this moment. Now, you had a co-CEO at the time, and then you realized, even though he was doing much of the running of the firm, around 2004, and it happened to other companies like Starbucks and Nike, you realized we're, we're, we're listing, and you had to come back and run the ship. Well, that was really a, a, a motivation by the board 
the board came to me and said, Chuck, we're unhappy with the CEO at the time. Uh, there was some difference of opinions about direction and so forth. And so they asked me if I would come back as CEO. And and it took me about four seconds to come to that decision because I, I knew that we were listing as a company. We were just not, we needed new thrust. And so made that happen. I became CEO, you know, I was almost 70, I think, at the time. And uh, it was four years of hard work. I mean, it was like having a fire hose in your mouth all the time. It was really something at the very beginning. It sort of evened out. But we restructured the company, turned it all around. A great CEO has come in, Walt Bettinger, in 2008. And he and I worked really together as a great partnership ever since. So what lesson can you give people? It happened, as I mentioned, in other companies, you lose focus. How did you, looking back, how did you lose focus and how do you try to prevent that from happening well, again? in my case, I always felt we had a genuine purpose in life as a company. We were really helping individuals to do a better job about investing, to make it possible for them to put their savings aside and not have it sort of sucked away by bad decisions, by bad salesmanship, all these things that were really... It turned you off for decades. Out, absolutely, and would never get you in the mainstream of really being able to be a participant in the great growth of America. I mean, this is one of the great things I... You, know, you learn about capitalism and such. It's, it's a terrible name, but it comes from the word, the Latin word caput, from head. It's about creations, about innovations, about all these things, about growth, about what the human person can do for tomorrow and make life better, where socialism is all about status quo, what, what happened in the past and everyone should be the same. That's not the way us humans operate. It's about our dreams and our passions and so forth. So anyway, I thought our company really has a purpose. So it, to me, that's what I wanted to instill in my employees is that passion. That was somewhat the purpose of the book is about, I want to have our employees understand the framework, the basis of which we operate as a company. And hopefully it'll be there in place as sort of a, a Bible of the beginnings for the future. Now, another thing people should understand if they want to be entrepreneurs is that uh, you get ideas and sometimes you don't follow through and you look back and say, gee, I wish I'd, I'd done that. That right. Mistakes are made, and that's part and parcel oh, of it. Uh, like Schwab portal. But we had to do it. It was appropriate at the time, but it was a very goofy thing. This was the portal thing where people could have a little uh, machine on the thing, get Dow Jones Industrial, average things, and news and so forth. But it really was very kludgy, and we had to shut it down. So... Uh, you get the, you retire in two, not retire, but uh, Walt Bettinger takes over. In 2008. 2008. You get through the crisis, even though people make the same mistake again of getting out when they shouldn't. But you uh, end up the book uh, in a very nice way called Chuck's Secret Sauce. And uh, two, two, two things uh, stand out. One is, uh, many things stand out, but uh, one uh, that really is personal, visual, art. Yeah, I well, art and... Of course, in philanthropy, uh, is really important to me. And, and art was a th way of, uh, I mean, I think artists have a, a fantastic ability to see things that most of us don't see. And they're able to solve issues, uh, mental issues, or 
political issues that they describe in, in art form. And I thought, and they're always changing, always evolving. It's one of the great forms of human, the human race, art, from the caves on to the present. And so I always thought artists had the permission to make changes and do things. I thought I, as a business guy, had the same permission to go do that stuff, take the best of the human creativity and make it possible to better our lives. And you also say, find passions that fill different parts of your soul. Yeah, that's... We're well, not one-dimensional. Yeah, well, that's what the company's all about, frankly. Chuck, thank you very much. Thanks, Steve. A real pleasure. And now, my reads of the week. Well, one you can find online just about anywhere. The South Park cartoon Apology to China. It is a classic. You'll be laughing. The Beijing government won't be and hasn't been, but the rest of the world is. And it also underscores sometimes the most deadly enemy against oppression is humor. South Park has done it. They've hit a grand slam on this one. Now, another article, a little less uh, portentous, is entitled, Painting Zebra Stripes on Cows Wards Off Biting Flies. It's written by Ross Pomeroy, P-O-M-E-R-O-W, at realclearscience.com. And he cites a study that says these stripes cuts the number of biting flies on cows by more than half. Who would have thought on the great ranges of Texas and elsewhere we're going to have zebra cows? No, we're not, but it's an interesting study. Another one. This is from our friends at fee.org, F-E-E.org, Foundation for Economic Education. This one is written by Ross Marchand, M-A-R-C-H-A-N-D. The title is, The FDA's Outdated Standards Make Shopping for Healthy Food More Confusing. One example, there are foods that may be high in fat, but also highly nutritious. And that kind of sophistication is needed so consumers can make wise choices instead of the blunderbuss, all good or all bad. People want a little more choice and sophistication in what they buy. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.